The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Chris Thrill. I'm a former Royal Marines commando. I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Liz, how are you, sister? I'm all right, thank you, Chris. How are you? <laughs> well, yes, all the better for seeing you. Yeah, it's good to see you yes. too. Yes, I thought I was doing um, a podcast with a member of the RAF and uh, it... Uh, then I thought I was chatting to Miss World. Oh, you're too kind. You're far too kind. <laughs> is sorry, I, I am I'm, I am trying to flatter you, but um, it, is that an issue in in the forces? Did you is misogyny is what I'm getting at? Is it is that a a thing? A, yeah. No, I was really lucky. So um, I mean, part of my well, most of my career, I was one of the only females that worked on Chinooks as a crewman, certainly. Um, and for uh, four years, I was the only female. But um, no, I was never single out to be like anything special because I was a chick. It was just a case of, you know, crack on lofting, get on with the job. And yeah, I am. Um, I think that's one of the things the forces is actually pretty good at. If you're if you're good at your job and you've got the respect, then they just let you crack on. But it's like having 60 big brothers on a night out, like the ring of steel. It's like, fuck <laughs> off, lad. Time to pull here. But no, they were, they were great. Can't, yes, can't it's complain. a bit like that in the minute with the, 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 the Royal Marines have now allowed female entrance. Yeah. Um, I think, and I don't think anyone's yet to get to, you know, get, get through. But I just know that uh, should a female enter the fray, the boys are just going to treat them equally and 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 not just equally but they'll give them every support and incentive to get to get through it's just the way it, it's just yeah. the way it is and i hope someone does i mean i'm a bit of a whenever i first arrived at odium as a crewman um seven squadron which was the special forces squadron there didn't have females it was almost i don't ever think it was written in, in black and white but it was almost the unwritten rule that females pilots and crewmen weren't allowed to go to seven squadron not just because you know the capability of operating on the back of the aircraft but the nature of the job you go and live in a crater with the shakies and the blades and you're you know pissing in a hole shitting wherever you know it's not a good environment to have a female in there who's just and i don't care what anyone says having a female in the mix does mix it up um it changes people's perception and stuff and actually if guys were on the job and you know one of the females went down there's like an inbuilt chip i think in men to want to go and protect them i, I mean don't get me wrong they still got the same kind of chip to go and protect their mates their brothers but um there's a very strong overwhelming thing to go and protect females so i was quite happy not to go seven because i thought you know it's I wouldn't want to ever put the other lads in that position. So it never really bothered me. However, I do think that the rules have changed recently and now they do let females, I think the first two air crew are going seven at the minute. So so that's, you know, it's not quite the Marines and the Paras, but it's still that special forces kind of over behind enemy lines. So yeah, all my hat's off to them. As long as they can do the job and do it well, then I wish them all the best. <laughs> yes, of course. And and so Liz, should we take it from the beginning? What what why did you decide to join the RAF? So I joined the RAF on my 19th birthday and I had no background in the forces whatsoever. My um, None of my parents or grandparents were forces, but my brother joined the army a year before me and he went up to a place called Palace Barracks in Northern Ireland um, to do his barb test, which is the entrance test into the army. And uh, there was a magazine on the on the table in the careers office at Palace. And uh, it had a guy hang out inside of a helicopter on a rope. Well, I thought it was a rope. So I said to the other chap, um, like, what's this job, this guy on the rope? And he said, well, for starters, it's a wire. And the job title is helicopter crewman. And that was me. I was just like, do you know what? That's the coolest fucking job in the world. I want to do it. And I, do, I knew very little about it at the time. I just knew that that's what I wanted to do. So... 
applied to do it, went through some interviews at Pals Barracks and then got over to RAF Cranwell for like a, an initial interview. And then you come over for like uh, airman air crew selection. And that's like a series of aptitude tests. Like all the pilots go through it, air traffickers go through it. And my, my trade crewman goes through it as well. And then, yeah, you either get a yes, you're in or no, try try harder. <laughs> so I managed to get in. So I joined on my 19th birthday, straight from A-levels at school. It's a lot to ask, isn't it, of a 19-year-old? Yeah, well, I was really wet behind the ears. I mean, I had never been to England before. In fact, I think I've been over once at my brother's, uh, my half-brother's wedding. I thought Leeds was near London because obviously all the big cities are near each other, aren't they? Um, and I'd never had a curry. You know, I was so young and naive. And when I look back at it now, I was just, I don't, I think that's half the, half of how I got on through training so well because I didn't know any better. It was just like, here's a hoop, jump through it. Okay. <laughs> and just keep doing that and, and, you know, try your best. And, mm-hmm. you know, with naivety comes enthusiasm, doesn't it? So I just threw my all at everything. Was it a case then of when he got into training, if you didn't achieve certain marks, you'd have been, I don't know, back in my day, we used to say parachute packer. You know, you'd be fucked off to do some other Yeah, other uh, trade. Mm. Pretty much for air crew, you just got retreaded on another course. So you'd get back course. So if you didn't make the, and the way our course runs, it's like a three month course um, with loads of leadership and stuff like that in it. And you end up going on an exercise, carrying pine poles around in your shoulder and making tripods for Hercules to come in on. And, you know, it's all these like leadership type things like cross the lava pit with a, three buckets and a plank of wood. But you don't know whether or not you've passed or failed until the very end of the course. And at the very end of the course, they call out your name. And if your name's called out, then you're recoursed. And if you're if you stood there at the end, then you've made it through. So it's pretty brutal. It's called Black Tuesday. Um and yeah, you just get recoursed. So you get a second attempt at that. And then if it's don't get through the second time, then you're you're out. So And how how long is this period of time? So it's only three months. We do three months basic. It, I think it might have changed slightly now, but in my day it was three months and on the back of that, you come out as a sergeant because we had to, in theory, hold a rank in the forces where we could um, command the rear of the aircraft, so the, the cabin of the Chinook. So because, you know, 99% of the, the infantry would be a lesser rank, we came out as a sergeant so that we could, in theory, order them around, which we never did. But, um, you know, when we were giving them briefs and stuff, at least we had the rank to hold on our shoulders. But what that also meant is that I came out of the RAF basic training after three months as the rank of sergeant. <laughs> which at the ripe old age of 19 is a lot to carry on your shoulders. And the RAF used to nickname us the plastic sergeants because that's exactly what we were. <laughs> we had no clue, but um, you very quickly grow into it. When, certainly when you get to a war zone, let's put it that way. I should have been awarded the rank of sergeant when I left training. <laughs> I was bloody brilliant. Yeah, no, it's, um, I was a very, uh, you know, a very crap sergeant in all other respects, but uh, not bad at being our crew. And Liz, forgive me, but the reason I started my podcast isn't just to chat to fascinating characters like yourself, but also just ask all those questions that like I'd never get to ask. Um, it, no, it's not probably what people think. It It's food in the RAF. <laughs> it's legendary in the British military that the RAF have. Like, I should give a shout well, out we, here to... I, I just... I'm just going to give a shout out to Royal Marine Chefs because they really looked after us and, and the Royal Navy as well. When I was on ship, they spoiled us rotten, you know. On ship? Oh, I've yeah. been on before and I was not going to ask about it. But um, no, we used to, we have a joke with the officers in the RAF that they have swan ciabatta for lunch because it's so posh in the officer's mess. I can't say that the food I ever had was, oh, it was always all right, you know what I mean? But most of the time whenever I was eating in a mess it was because i was deployed somewhere so it was it was generally not the raf chefs it was someone from the army or you know fijians or something making some crazy food but no it, was, it wasn't bad it's probably mm. slightly better than the army i imagine mm. but it's okay. not as as you starve so the, the whole system's changed now and instead of just going in and filling your boots on a friday afternoon with fish and chips you have to pay for it now so i think everyone's pretty disgruntled in the forces now <laughs> um yeah it's not good well- We'll come on to that. My God. Yeah. Yes. Um, did did I read, did you do 10 tours of Afghanistan? Or uh, uh... Yeah, yeah. I did um, two deployments to Iraq 
And then I went to Iraq when I was 21. So I was the youngest air crew to go to Iraq. Um, and I mean, that was after the war. Finally, it was just routine tasking then in 2004. Yeah, three. And then back again in 2004. And then went to Herrick in 2005 and did 10 Herricks. But unlike the Army and the Marines would have done is that we, you guys did six-month tours. We only did three months because we had to keep our currencies back here in the UK. So we had to come back to like simulator check rides and like learn our emergencies and stuff like that. Um, so we did three months at a time, but because of that, it meant it came around every freaking year. So it was relentless. Yeah, it was like, I'm, I should have bought property out there because, you know, I spent that much fucking time there. <laughs> Jeez, that's still the best part of three years in, in, in theatre. Yeah. But the Yanks do like a year. Some of them do like a year and a half. We, I remember going out to uh, Kandahar, coming back to the UK and going back out again for my second round. And the same guy was in the passes office at the Taliban last stand at CAF. And I was like, you've been here since I left. And he went, yep. And that, the Yanks are just crazy uh, how long they do. But they love it. <laughs> and when you are, uh, I want to talk all about the uh, uh, Chinook, but the weapon systems how does that work because i only know from my time in the military how to fire i mean i fired rifles pistols machine gun, uh, yeah machine guns submachine guns etc cetera, etc cetera, and a rocket launcher and this sort of stuff but right. you, you you're firing like some pretty hefty weapons yeah yeah the Chinook's got fitted uh, on the ramp an M60, and the M60 is essentially what they use in the Vietnam War on the Hueys, on bungees out the door. So we have that fitted to the ramp, and the reason why it's on the ramp is because you can basically fit it and remove it with a pit pin. It's really quick, so you can like take it off, get a land over in, put it back on again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the front on the left and right-hand door, uh, we've got a minigun, which always used to make me laugh why it's called a minigun, because there's nothing mini about that thing. It's huge. Um, so the minigun fires 3,000 rounds a minute of 7.62, which is essentially looks like a lightsaber show. It is, I mean, it just destroys Hiluxes in seconds, which I can witness firsthand. But, um, and the M60 is about 1,000, uh, yeah, sustained 1,000 rounds a minute. So it's um, it's all right. It's nowhere near as good as the the minigun. But um, yeah, it, we're, we're pretty well protected and we look after our troops pretty well if we need to. <laughs> What what I'm what I'm interested in is is how do you train on a on a weapon like that? Do you do you, do you go on the range or? Yeah, there's a couple of um, air to ground ranges in the UK, mostly up the east coast actually, and some just off the the west coast of Wales. So we would on a you know pre on a pre Herrick kind of training PDT, we would head up to the east coast and spend a whole day doing day and night gunnery. Um, and I mean, it's really quite funny. One of the old ranges up there was a range called Donanook, and it just used to have seals all over it and seal pups. So it was like, you know, you'd get up there and you'd be like, right, lads, they're not targets. We're going to have to go find somewhere else. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then it, the good thing about doing gunnery up in that kind of neck of the woods was we'd do day and tonight, and then we'd usually come back through the heli lanes and fly down the heli lanes to get back to Odium, where we're based from. So that was always a pretty nice way to end what was essentially a whole day sitting around in the back of an aircraft, listening to miniguns, and then having your like 10 minutes on the on the gun and then sitting back down again while everyone else had theirs. So they're, they sound great, but they're actually could be quite boring. But um, we, we do some training in California as well, where we had to train desert training. So it was a lot of dust landings and stuff like that. But there's a range in America, uh, in California, and it's a 360 range. So we had all three guns going at once. So um, that was pretty cool. <laughs> and do you have to achieve like a level you know to pass you'd like to think so wouldn't you chris but no uh well we have gunnery instructors i was a gunnery instructor so you just have to assess that, that whoever's it's more about their handling of the weapon and their handling with the emergencies and stoppages than actually whether or not they can hit the freaking target which mm. i mean nine times out of ten that's what we practice for but truth is if you're in herrick and you're contacted you're either arriving a landing site or departing a landing site. And as soon as you call contact, wherever that's going to be, the first thing the pilot's going to do is pull in power and overshoot. So, um, or maneuver. So, you I mean, you don't have this lovely straight and level flight that everyone dreams of to sort of, you know, hose stuff down. You're either left and right and all over the place. So, um, yeah, we, you know, we practice our best, but truth is that you're going to have to walk your tracer on no matter what happens. <laughs> how, how, how do you simulate that? 
when you're on the range it is i mean when we, fly, like that get the pilots to do overshoots so we would come in and as a gunnery instructor i'll call contact five o'clock contact at one o'clock or whatever and then the pilot will overshoot and whoever's on the gun will then try and walk onto the target ah so you're actually in flight yeah yes yeah. So, did you I mean, ever did you ever fire it static just to I don't know get yeah. get get you yeah we um I mean a lot of the range stuff is will work the guys certainly the guys that have never shot the weapon before because when you open up with a minigun it gives a bit of a kick and it's it's loud and just to kind of let the guys who've never shot one before have a go we'll sit in the hover and just shoot at one of the I mean some of the things on the range are like landowners barges that kind of thing um so we'll just let them sit in the nice and steady hover without the wind flow because even as well as the aircraft maneuvering you've got the wind coming to across the front of the gun so you've got this thing called trajectory drift which is a bit gunnery kind of ta- um sort of um, speak but essentially if you're firing the rounds as they come out of the end of the weapon and they go into the airflow they're going to spit off to the right so you have to aim off slightly to the left so we let them practice all that in the hover and then we let them go around at like 40 knots 60 knots 80 knots and then once they've got their head around that then it's like all the fun and games starts and it's overshoots and and then you have to do the same at night and at night time we've got an ir laser that lights up the target but again you're trying to manage with your hands not just the triggers but your IR laser and your intercom button as well. So it's like you're trying to be like Dr. Octopus with all your fingers because you just can't can't trigger everything at the same time. But uh, most of them are pretty good. It's not it's not that hard. And with respect to the flying aspect of the Chinook, did like did you pick any of that up or is that like nothing to do with you? Do you... In terms of being a pilot and uh, actually handling the aircraft? Yeah. No, I got offered a lot. I got offered loads of times because we train in the simulator as well. So we do a lot of our flying trainer in the simulator. There's one at Benson and there's now one at Odium. And uh, we train for all our emergencies in there. So we'll go in for like a two-hour sortie and the crewmen will sit in the back. Pilots will jump in the front and they can be quite mundane because we're always training the same kind of things. There's like a couple of mandatory emergencies. In fact, there's six of them and you always train the same six ones. Um. So it used to get quite boring. So the odd time the pilots would be like, Liz, do you want to jump in the front and have a go? And I'd be like, mm. so I had a couple of goes. I was pretty crap at it for me. <laughs> it was not my bag. But um, over my career, a few people said, do you not fancy retraining, Liz? Because I had time on my side because I joined so young. And a few people said, do you not fancy like becoming a pilot? I was like, why would I do that? And you know, being a crewman is the best job in the world. And I honestly think sitting on the ramp with your feet dangling over the edge, even Afghanistan, which is a war zone, watching the sunset in the heat, feet dangling over the edge, tasking day is over and you're heading home. And that's the best seat in the house because you you don't have to think about things. You don't have to worry about a call sign. You don't have to work, worry about any other stuff. You can just watch the world go by. And I mean, see him coming through London, like I mentioned earlier, the London Hellions, nothing beats sitting on that ramp waving at people in you know canary wharf and as you go past the london eye and like you're a rock star and and there's no way i'd want to swap that for being a pilot who's strapped to the front of the thing like a taxi driver (laughs) so yeah definitely Mm. i think the better job and what about what's the drills then for crash landing what what if there's a uh, you know a engine malfunction i mean i'm just going to chuck some silly stuff at you because i reckon people at home like me would want to ask you do you have parachutes on board or or is that no nothing like that so the good thing about the chinook is there's nearly a redundant system for everything so there's you know two engines we can essentially lose an engine on a chinook and the other one will keep the rotors turning so it's not like one engine controls one rotor both engines control both so you can you lose an engine you could uh hydraulic systems have all got a backup um and even the rotor blades i mean i've seen people take a foot and a half off the end of one of the rotor blades in a confined area and the thing you know the chinook still continues to fly it just flies like a bag of nails but it's a really it's a called a battlefield hel- helicopter for a reason it's really robust mm-hmm. um and because there's so much redundant space in the middle of it, unlike the puma if the puma takes enemy fire you're more likely to hit something really important like the combining gearbox the cockpit and all the important stuff's all jammed in a really small area on the chinook it's all really spread out so i mean i've been pepper potted loads of times in theater and you hear the tink 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 as the rounds come into the aircraft and they can literally fill you up but they'll not hit anything important 
But obviously, if they do, um, we're all trained. Uh, the and crewmen, so my role, we're trained how to manage a lot of the emergencies down the back so we can service the aircraft if we're land away somewhere we can do AFs and BS which is after flights and before flight servicing and we can pretty much put most things back together with help from the engineers mm-hmm. um so that's why we're kind of specced up to be basically essentially ground engineers that can fly um but the pilots I mean that's why we do the simulator like I was talking about earlier that's where we train to do if there's an emergency we've got these FRCs and we go through them and uh you know the the pilots that's what they get paid their money for is a lot of the immediate react uh, immediate actions which are something happens they've got you know 10 button presses they need to do instantly and then we'll start backing them up so yeah it's a pretty good helicopter Liz I'm probably going to lose myself here but I I I said to you before this is your podcast and I don't want to go any further before mentioning your book Oh, yeah, <laughs> because people have only got you know half an hour to watch this. Um, we want them to know that you've got a book out. Yeah, uh, is that your was that your title, Chinook Crew Chick? Yeah, that's what the lads call me. So I was a crew man. That's um, that's the that's the title of the job I did. And thankfully, it's like still being preserved. Is that new new PC? People have got hold of it yet? So we're not crew people yet. We're still crewmen. Mm. And I always wanted to stay like that. Um, but yeah, the lads used to refer to me as the crew chick or uh, Doris was pretty much what I got called most of my career, um, which is actually a really affectionate term. It's not, you know, some people were like, oh, Doris, is that not derogatory? Not really. I always used to love being called Doris. So never bothered me. But yeah, crew chick is, and the book's called Chinook Crew Chick. Mm. My dad calls people Doris. He, he loves it. <laughs> yeah. My, my squadron mug had Doris on it and it, I did not mind at all. It was, it was brilliant. We had about... We had a couple of Dorises by the end. By the time I left, there was three or four female crewmen. And I was Doris number one. And then there was Doris number two and Doris number three. <laughs> but it never really caught on the same with them as it did with me. So, yeah. We'll come on to the uh, writing because, like I said earlier, uh, Liz, uh, it's, uh, that's an incredible achievement in it, in it, in it. In it, in it, in it, in it, in it, in itself. Um, yeah. I just wanted to mention it. Now, uh, uh, I just wanted to give that a sh- your book a shout out now. Um, so, yeah. So, get into the nitty gritty. At, at what point in theatre did it all get very real? So the first, when I did my first debt in Afghan, I mean, Iraq was pretty quiet for me. Iraq, I, I mean, it still feels a bit playground, really. And I'm not saying it wasn't busy for the infantry and certainly the, uh, a lot of the uh, re- regiments that went there as we withdrew as an Air Force um, were getting IED'd all the time. There was loads of IDF at, at Basra and there was, a, a, I think there was a couple of, of um, people killed in Basra. But not when I was there. When I was there, it was very quiet. So then when we went to Afghan, uh, the first couple of deployments I did, we were based from Kandahar and Bastion was essentially just a barbed wire fence. It was just literally a barbed wire fence in the middle of nowhere. And we were under slinging all the, the you know, pa- uh, pallets with full of stuff. We were like drums with wire cabling on it, step ladders, all the stuff that built Bastion essentially got taken there by Chinook, either underneath in an ISO container or inside. So again, that wasn't really that busy the first couple of deaths because we only had troops in Sangin, Goresh, and Lashkagar, and a couple all the way up north in Kajaki. But none of the fobs were there. You know, none of that existed. And 2006, that's kind of when things started to flip a little bit. So the Paris got um, had a really tasty debt in Sangin. Um, Nauzad started to kind of rumble around in the background and Musikala, and then we started to have more British troops pushing up Helmand. Um, and it's it's inevitable, isn't it? The more British troops you have on the ground, the more kinetic it's going to get. So from 06 onwards, it started to get really kinetic. And the, the the biggest thing then, obviously, we noticed is the MERT, which is the Medical Emergency Response Team, which is essentially the flying ambulance, went from being, you know, one, maybe two shots a week to, I mean, my worst day was six, uh, 14 shots in one day. So it was like scenes from MASH, you know, and I always said that and I said, it's not an exaggeration. We would be bringing nine liners in, dropping them off at um, Nightingale HLS, which is at Bastion. And on the way back in, getting another nine liner on the radio and going straight back out again. So um, what's, it, what's a nine liner? So a nine liner is how the British troops report a casualty. And it's a really like um, 
it's a, a format that everybody uses so that it, there's no mess, like nothing's lost in translation and it's a really clear format. So it's like call grid, call sign, um, the, the nature of the injury or the categorization of the injury. So T1 is you need, this guy's dying. You know, you need to get here now. T3 is walking wounded and T2 is somewhere in between. So quite often we would get maybe a T2 and it would become a T1 while we were on our way there. You know, the injuries would get worse. Or um, we'd get a shout for maybe a T1 and en route, we would find out there's actually a T1, a T2 and three T3s because it had been a tick, which is troops in contact. So it was never, I mean, most of the information we would get, the nine liner would come in Bastion HQ. It would get phoned straight through to the bat phone, which is the tent we were holding the response in. So we would basically sit in a tent all day um, on notice, 15 minutes notice to move. Although it never took us 15 minutes to get airborne. I think my quickest was less than five minutes. Um, but yeah, so we'd get the nine liner. We'd run out to the aircraft. The medics would come out with us and the force protection guys would spin the thing up as fast as we physically could and then just head to wherever the grid was. And then the crewman, my job was to be on the TAC radio. So we'd be on the TAC radio back to, um, battle, well, Bastion effectively, which is the HQ. They'd get more information and pass it to us. And then eventually we would flick over to the, the troops on the ground and we'd speak to them on the net. And they would give us even more detailed information about the nature of the injury of the casualty. So we'd land on, ramp goes down, combat medic would run out into the six o'clock, meet the casualty and the stretcher and stretcher bearers. And then it was kind of get whatever on board. So, I mean, they used to come back on with, you know, I've seen stretchers go past with this literally torsos on them, you know, legs missing, arms missing. Um, and that goes from not just British soldiers, but, you know, Yanks, um, Dutch soldiers, but also Afghan locals, you know, kids, you know, coming past in pretty bashed up ways. Um, I also once got tasked to shout where uh, it was a troops in contact and we had to go and pick up the guys. I think it was Paris had been um, hit and and the ta- a Taliban soldier. So that in itself brought a real moral conflict of like, like it's his fucking fault that these guys are, you know, in the way they are, but we still had to take him back to Bastion, mm-hmm. uh, which says a lot about, you know, you know, the command element in there when they actually said, yeah, bring the bring Taliban back, you know, human life is a human life essentially. Um, but yeah, so Mert was pretty tasty for those couple of years, definitely. Going back to the um, the first taste of, so Liz, I just explained like when, when we went out. Uh, my experience of combat was Belfast. Yeah, um, yeah not not far from you, no. <laughs> right? And um, I remember going out the camp gate for the first time. You pepper pot like you know you're running running like hell to avoid the you know potential sniper and that and nothing like happened for a week it was just oh is this it is this going to be like our six month or our, i think it was a five month tour is it just going to be walking around the streets <laughs> right? and then bang when it went off oh my god it was just like such a freaking awakening yeah boom like that and so much stuff going off you know these guys getting hit up here on top of the blocks of flats. Um, we were we, we got hit twice in in the same day. We got blown. Uh, well, a, 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 a bomb went off, and then the chap behind me got 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 hit. And what was the moment for you when you first had to get on the gun and start giving it back? So I used to refer to this as my normality bar so when i was in um iraq it because it was a bit quieter we would go into things like uh basra palace or shatlar hotel was there and the end brief was like this place was mortared last week and i'd be like wow that's dangerous and then the next time you get briefed it's like oh this place was mortared yesterday so you think even more dangerous and then the next thing it was mortared that morning and you'd still be going in so your your normality bar for what was like danger really slowly crept up so it wasn't like I went straight into the thick of the fight. It was like really slowly, the danger kind of got nearer, but it became more normal. And then the same in Afghan, like Noizad was a classic example. Every time we landed on a Noizad, we'd be mortared within seconds. But that became like almost a game to us to like get everything loaded and get the fuck out of there before you got hit. Mm-hmm. And then and then aircraft started getting hit. Now, the first time I had to return fire was actually on a really benign 
um, routine tasking day, which is just a routine tasking in Afghan is just where we're moving troops and rations and whoever needs to go around the, the area to different landing sites. And it was somewhere just southeast of Lashkugar, actually. Um, and yeah, we got just got built up on the landing site and we were sort of mid loading people. But the problem with when you're on the land, when you're already on the deck, you can't get the range and the weapons, you can't get your sights on. So all you have to do is sit there like an innocent bystander while you watch the dust get kicked up around the aircraft until you can then lift and, uh, and return fire. But again, it's your normality bar and suddenly you find yourself not even being worried that you're being shot at because you think, well, it's, at least it's not high caliber. And again, you always got a, at least it's not. And, and that's where I think it's really a lot. So that I was lucky in that respect, but we also had a lot of crewmen who came behind me who were sort of parachuted into Afghanistan as their first debt. And it was right in the middle of that, like 2006 onwards kind of era. So not only had they just come fresh out of training, but they were now getting shot at um, and picking up dead bodies and limbs and all sorts of stuff with not that chance to kind of ease into it. So a lot of those guys find it really hard. But I think by the end of my debt, my last um, merch out, and this is how I knew that my perception of normal was a little bit skewed we picked up an american who'd been killed and he got carried on the back of the aircraft and then the yanks handed me his foot in a clear plastic bag and said here's his foot and i was like okay cool just put it down beside me like no emotion um because it becomes so routine then and you just think like i even telling this story it sounds so fucked up but at the time it was like well it's just his foot stick it down there <laughs> so uh yeah i think your normality bar is a good thing to get you into the, you know, ease you into combat. But it also essentially when you become so normalized to it, that's when the damage is really starting to occur. Yeah, Liz, my gosh, there's so much we can say there. Um, but in that theater, it is normal and you've done really well. You know, that's what you do. That I guess the secret, uh, secret, <laughs> the you know, the thing for for veterans who've been in that level of intensity is, you know, how, how to switch it to civilian life, isn't it? You know? Yeah. I mean, the secret, I think, was to not overthink it. You know? Yeah, was, yeah, yes, yes. That's what, that is what yeah. I was trying to say. Whenever we were, you know, collecting and scooping these guys off the battlefield, um, they'd go into Bastion Hospital and... And we would deliberately wouldn't go and follow it up, you know, uh, unless we knew it was a really positive outcome. Uh, but most of the time we didn't really want to know because we knew, well, we did want to know, but we just knew it'd be so detrimental on our health and our mental health to see the actual, because whenever the you know, casualties on, on board the aircraft, they're essentially just a really precious piece of freight. And it's our job to get them back to that hospital as quick as we can. But there's no, there's no name, there's no personality, there's no, family at home to think about that's just a piece of freight to get it back so we deliberately didn't ever really chase that other side of it up and that's where I came really unstuck during lockdown because I, I you know I'd always not overthought it and then when we got locked down in 2020 I had none of my coping mechanisms were there my coping mechanisms for a shit day at work we always like go for a run go for a long long run or you know head out with mates on the piss and that was all taken away from us during lockdown so I found myself really with nothing else but my own thoughts and I developed insomnia. And I remember one night looking up the back catalog, I had my logbook out and I was looking up the names of the guys that I picked up on IRT shouts that had died and like discovering like, you know, where they had they got fiance, did they have kids, all that stuff. And it, I knew at the time, like big red signals going, Liz, this is fucked up behavior, but I did nothing. I just carried on regardless. And I knew I was coming really unraveled and really going down a slippery slope. Uh, into a very dark place and um, just didn't want to be a burden to anyone. So I didn't really let on to any of my friends that this was happening. And it got worse and worse and worse until I ended up in 2020 taking a, a massive overdose with the sole purpose of going to sleep forever uh, and, and not waking up again, just to quiet the voices that were going, not the voices, it wasn't really voices, it was just chatter and noise that was in my head at the time. But obviously, yeah. I, I, I survived. So I'm here to tell the story. Thank God. Yeah, I was going to say, don't, don't do that again. No. <laughs> I can't recommend it. Let's put it that way. But no. um, you know, hopefully, the, the the second half of my book is very much a a lesson in life. To, you know, to people who are going down the same slope as I was to say, you know, just just tell someone, just grab someone, and it doesn't matter who it is, and just say, I'm really struggling. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I, I know I give my mental health a number. You know, when people say, how are you today? I'm like, well, maybe a six. And that's a lot, a lot easier, I think, for people to say than going, oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm just fine. Or I'm, I'm having a shit day. It's sometimes easier just to give it that scale of one to 10. You know, I'm a three. Could, you know, some days a two, but, you know, getting there. So give it a number is my advice to people. Gosh, pause. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez. Oh, Liz, I, 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 you, you're doing, uh, you, you, you've been through so much. You, uh, it, it's, it's insane, isn't it? We're having this conversation about stuff that it, it, it's just all bizarre. I mean, most people will, and I don't mean this patronizingly, like will never have experienced what you've been through. Um, I mean, but I feel very privileged to have been through it. You know, yeah. I feel very, like being on Mert and picking up soldiers on their last journey out of the battlefield was an honor. It really was. I always say that, you know, it was the best of times and the worst of times, but it was a privilege and an honor to be part of that. And I think, you know, if I, if I could have anything in the world, uh, you know, people say, would you have an eternal life or a million pounds or whatever? I'd have a rewind button and go back to the start and do it all again. Cause I loved every second of it. Even the stuff that has left me with the, you know, the, the fuck ups that I have in my head now, it was, that's what makes you a colorful person, isn't it? You know, the, yeah. The, the bad times and the good times are, are what makes you know, the tapestry of life, isn't it? So um, I would still go back and do it all again. And uh, yeah, I can't, you know, I have no regrets. I am re- I'm really lucky in that respect. You know, people say, oh, do you not regret the day you tried to take your life? And I'm like, well, no, because I think that had to happen. I think like a glow stick, you have to break to really start to, sh- you know, come out the other side and shine. And I think I had to get to that point in life to then start my next journey of the recovery putting all the files back in my head where they needed to be. And part of that really was not just chucking everything back in where I'd locked it away for years. It was reading the files and acknowledging the trauma on them and it, like almost accepting that it's normal to feel sad about that or, you know, all that stuff that I've seen. It is, it was pretty horrendous, but it was so easy at the time just to wash over it and kind of go, oh, well, it was just a job. And, it, it you know, it took a long time to kind of go, yeah, well, that was pretty, pretty awful, uh, but it's still an honor. So yeah, no regrets whatsoever. Hey, do you know, I learned my favorite expression. I think it was earlier this year. It was, a, it was a film actually. It was a Western. Oh, hang on. I've got things popping up on my screen. It was a Western Liz. Um, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what, but. You remember at the end of the podcast. No, but the, the, the expression was. What we lose in the fire, we'll find in the ashes. Very true. Yeah. Just, like just, that is life. You I'll know? be my next tattoo then, we'll do it. <laughs> hey, let's get a joint one. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have half of it, you can have the other. Yeah. Oh, the ashes. <laughs> I'm saying yeah. like here, that would be a, that, that would be a bit weird, but. <laughs> I'm covered in them. I'm covered in them. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Um. Liz, tell me, the Chinook, what an incredible machine. What makes it special? So I think from my, whenever I was at Palace Barracks doing my um, initial duty to come across, going way back to the start of the podcast, um, I was driving in the main gate and I pulled in in my little green Corsa that I had at the time because it was only 17. And a Chinook came right over the top of the car into the into Palace Barracks. And I remember looking up and just seeing the belly of the aircraft just went right over the top of me and it literally shook, you know, it shakes your body to pieces, doesn't it, a Chinook? And thought, that, that's, that's what I want to be on. And it was only years later, whenever I actually had eventually got through all my training. Um, and as you go through training, you get given like a dream sheet and you can write the aircraft that you want to go on in order. So at the time, the RAF were operating search and rescue. Um, so that was Sea Kings, there was Pumas, there was Merlins, and there was Chinooks. And I used to put Chinook, Chinook, Chinook down as my option one, two, and three. But it was when I eventually got posted Chinook, um, someone said, yeah, they used to hardly ever go into Palace Barracks it, because it was such a small landing site. They never used to go in there. So I, I still look back on that day and think, I wonder if it was a sign or if it was one of those you know, classic moments in life that changed the direction and the path I was on. But if you're going to be a crewman, it's the only aircraft to be on, in my opinion, because we, I mean, we've got a huge cabin floor, you know, fit in two Landovers, a Landover and a trailer, a 105 gun. 
Um, what we can't fit inside goes underneath, and we've got three hooks, whereas all the other aircraft have got one. And we can lift up to 24 and a half tons, which is huge. So if you're going to learn your trade, you might as well go on the you know the the one that challenges you the most mm-hmm. and gives you the you know the most to do. Uh, don't get me wrong. Most days in Afghanistan, you put the ramp down, and it's like a bad game of Jenga, trying to fit everything in because none of it reflected the tasking sheet. You know, you'd be told you're going somewhere to pick up like ten troops and a step ladder, and you'd arrive, and there'd be like twenty four troops, three locals, a donkey, a step ladder, and a couple of drums of oil. And you're like, oh, what the hell am I going to put all this? But we always find a way. Um, and that's where the Chinook, you know, as a crewman, there is no other aircraft you want to work on. Um, and like I've referred to earlier as well, it's it's a battlefield helicopter that looks after you. You know, it's got the beefiest weapons and, you know, everything on there. If, if it gets hit, it's still going to get you home. Mm. So it's the sound of freedom. That's what the troops call it. And it's very true. Liz, who, make, who makes it? It's Boeing. So it's Americans. It's- yeah, Boeing in America. So I've got a couple of friends now who were crewmen in the Air Force, now work for Boeing here in the UK, um, wearing a blue flying suit now instead of a green one. And they spend most of their time out in Philadelphia having a great time because that's where the HQ is. I remember my kind of, I don't know what you call it, you know, reintegrating into society. There's a lot of weird stuff, you know, when you're a forces person, especially if, well, not especially if you're a bloke, but for example, I mean, just a silly example, it took me a lot of years to realize if you had a disagreement with someone, you couldn't just like beat them up <laughs> yeah. or or attempt to beat them up. You know, I'm I'm being serious. I had some quite physical altercate. Is that the right word? Oh, you know, yeah. I remember. No, I'm not 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 even gonna <laughs> not even gonna go there. You know, it it, it took a long time to, you know. Find your drive again, yeah. Yeah, I I struggled those as well. I found um, I went to work for a disabled flying charity when I came out, who were amazing because they flew a lot of veterans that actually were wounded, injured soldiers who'd come off, you know, the Afghan campaign. And Airability, which is the charity, had scholarships for these guys, uh, helped with Help for Heroes, but a lot of other Boeing provided one, and a lot of other um, big companies. So that kind of gave me a sense of purpose again. But yeah, sitting in the office, like I would swear like a champion and, you know, calling someone like the ginger kid was like, you can't say that, Liz. And, you know, the banter that we have as forces people doesn't automatically translate to City Street. And I was very lucky with their ability because they kind of got me. But I, I always used to say that I think if I worked for a proper civvy company, I'd be sacked within weeks because... I was almost my own worst enemy in terms of I'd call someone Doris and they'd be like, but you're a girl, you can't call her Doris. And I'd be like, well, she is a Doris. And I was almost so negatively uh, PC for a female that I thought I'll get sacked if I was in a civvy job. So it's taken a while, but I know I work with a lot of military people again as civvies, but Mm. it's it's really hard to make that transition. But but particularly for you, because I've got this image in my head, right? like you're stepping through a doorway and you've got some poncy bloke going, Oh, hang on. I'll, I'll get that for you. And like, he will have no idea that he's lived a shitty, pissy crap life, <laughs> you know, in front of a computer screen. And like, actually you've been boom. Yeah. Living I, uh... a, you know, in the thick of it. And does that ever, is that like ever a clash? Do you ever like feel like grabbing someone and say, "Oi, buster!" Actually, <laughs> uh, or is that an e? Uh, uh, well, I mean, it's it is ego, and we've that's something yeah. we've we've all got to get a control of. I just like to quietly surprise people. So, I mean, I'm still I'm not I've never been a macho girl, and you know, if a bloke holds the door open for me, I still think that's just nice manners. You know, I'm never gonna go. I can get my own door. You know, I just think it's nice when people do that for you, and I'll hold a door for a girl or a guy. But uh, so I'll never be one to kind of, you know, lick a gift horse in the mouth, so to speak. And uh, but I do like quietly surprising people. Uh, so when you eventually get chatting to them and they ask what you previously did, and you tell them I was in a taxi last week in London going to the big Chinook reunion that we have every year. And in like little dress, hair curls, high heels on. And the guy asked what, I did, what you know, a little bit about me. And I got chatting and I said, I used to be in the forces. And he said, oh, what did you do? And I started to tell him and he's like, just cannot believe that that's the same person sat in a taxi but 
it's nice to surprise people. And usually somebody else butts in before me and says, do you know what she used to do? So I've had that a few times at like nights out and dinners and things that people have gone. <laughs> people have told my story before I even have to open my mouth. So, but yeah, I, I don't really mind. Have you been called a water missy yet? Oh, well, <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> oh, get ready for that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you've written a book. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, you know, I think... Um, I think that's where I find it really hard as well, coming out of the forces, is getting that point where you say that I used to be, that little sentence, I used to be, is really hard to say. You know, I used to be a Chinook crew in, and people go, yeah, but you're not now. And it's really hard to get your head around that veteran kind of, this is who we are now. And, you know, I used to have this real vision that veterans were all these old crusty blokes who, you know, marched on remembrance someday. And I'm a veteran now, you know, I've been a veteran since it was like 37 or something. So, you know, I like, the, and veterans are becoming younger and younger now. There's more guys, you know, who have done their time in Herrick and seen some really nasty shit. <laughs> and now they're essentially veterans walking around the street, you know, some of them certainly, you know, five, six years ago, were coming out at the age of 25, having had eight years of Herrick and, and really earned their worth. Um, and yeah, it's just veteran sounds like an old word, doesn't it? It does. It does. <laughs> You know, old crusties on well. on remembrance plate polishing their medals and yeah <laughs> it's uh um yes it would uh we need a new word that's what we need chris you need to like put it out there in the audience and get a new word for veterans yeah veterans. no i'm just i'm trying not to sound like like old and sexist here but <laughs> if it if if I, or if half the veterans look like you it, it would be a different bloody day <laughs> it's, nice, it's nice to not because, because i spent like my entire career in a flying suit covered in oil hydraulic fluid and oil i used to joke that om15 which is the hydraulic fluid on a tunic it used to just be my my perfume because I just always stank of om15 so with helmet hair everywhere and it's not a glamorous <laughs> job i mean being a crewman and humping and dumping most of the Marines in Paris on and off the aircraft in 40 degree heat and body armor covered in dust and sweat. It's not a glamorous job, but did, it's they, like, what, did they ever, were they ever surprised to see a female or was, or, or? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so because it wasn't, I, I was the only one for four years. And then even at our, our maximum, I think we had five of us. So yeah. big scheme of things. It was, you know, we were really few and far between. But they, always were, they were always all right. I mean, there was always a bit of banter down the back of the tunic and whatnot. And there's a story in the book about one day I managed to, I was sitting on the ballistic panel on the ramp uh, beside the M60. And as I got up, I ripped my entire combats open at the back and spent the entire day. I tried to bodge tape them up with black nasty, but it, it just kept opening. So my entire day I spent tasking in Helmand. And every time we filled the cabin up with troops, they would all be like, pointing and laughing and I'm like yes I know fucking got my thong on show and, yeah. but you know if it increased morale for a day then you know no one no one got hurt no one's pregnant but um yeah it was um yeah I, you know it was always a bit of a laugh and and I was never ever made to feel yeah I was never you know a single out by my lads at work and and equally every single squaddy and every single guy we flew in the back of the aircraft was always you know actually really quite respectful but in a fun way so i never had a problem yeah so i have no 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 doubts about that liz your book is chinook crew chick it's on amazon it's uh awaiting i guess you're waiting for the paperback version now yeah so pen and sword are the publishers and they've yeah. got amazon keeps selling out so it's actually better to go pen and sword the publishers have got loads of stock I mean, I can't really complain that Amazon keeps selling out. It's a good problem to have. But yeah. um, Pen and Sword, um, I've got, yeah. And it's hard to back at the minute. It should be going to paperback at some point. Um, people keep asking if I'm doing an audio version. And I was like, with this voice, would people actually want that? <laughs> oh, 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 no, do it. I, it <laughs> it's, a, it's a great voice. And yeah. you should definitely do it. Because I tell you what. I, I love to read books. You know, I like I like the actual book. I don't even like I've got yeah. Kindle and I've read loads on Kindle, but I don't I'd rather read but when I'm out and about, if I'm painting the garden shed, I love to listen to an audiobook in the background. Yeah. Or driving and it's a real big thing. And I I, I yeah, I, I, you do it. But you don't want someone else reading your book, right? I wouldn't want yeah. that. 
No, I hope you do it myself. Yeah. I, I write a lot of poetry as well, so um, I'm trying to get some of my poems on published or at least on the radar of the British Legion, so that maybe they can be involved in Remembrance Day. But um, yeah, audiobook might be the next the next thing. So yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I said to you earlier, Liz, your future is incredibly bright. You know, you're very kind. No, no, no I'm I'm not kind. I'm just honest. It, it's <laughs> you know, you you you've just got a wealth of experience. You've got the great personality to put it across um you clearly are, are concerned about veterans and etc etc and just even on the speaking circuit um geez geez you know well, it's, it's trying to find that new path in life and i think a lot of us ex-forces people mm. i mean there's certain trades in the forces that are just cut and paste into city life isn't there like you know pilots can most of the time walk in their pilot job you know drivers engineers chefs you know there's a direct translation there to city street but for my trade as a crewman you know and there's other things in the, like signalers you know there's not a direct read across into city street for them or even int um and crewman's the same unless some city person wants another uh, helicopter and that's why i got out. i end up damaging my neck and, and couldn't fly again so you know unless i can find a civilian who wants someone to man a minigun at like you know the end of the channel tunnel or something then i'm pretty much gonna struggle to find a job so it's trying to find that new path in life but i think a lot of veterans a lot of ex-forces uh come out and feel the same you know it's just trying to find your new identity and your new purpose in life so hopefully the book might be enough to stick me onto a different path and, yes uh, no i i'm absolutely certain of it you know certain yeah. of it um your story is going to inspire people and um the fact that you're you're still here with us is yeah. uh is bloody great you know yeah. great yeah. what uh, liz is there anything you want to um uh to finish off with where where if let, let's just say someone wanted to book you as a speaker how how can they get hold of you so i recently joined twitter ah, against my better judgment and i'm on there as uh chili crew chick so you can look me up on twitter and i'm also on instagram as chinic crew chick so uh I kept it quite simple it's the name of the book it's the name of the twitter account and the name of the instagram account but i'd love to hear from people um i'd love to hear from people who have read the book as well and hear what they thought of it um hopefully they enjoyed it um but yeah i'm, I'm up for you know my starting my new path so anyone who wants to get in contact then please do brilliant brilliant liz stay on the line it's just been absolutely wonderful um chatting to you blow me away to be honest <laughs> it, 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 just incredible just absolutely incredible it's been a pleasure um, yeah no mate 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 not absolutely my pleasure my pleasure to everyone at home massive love to you all as well if you can like and subscribe that would be really kind we'll put a link below for liz's book get on it <laughs> this is uh uh this is uh, this is a story story like no uh no no other really and um if you can like and subscribe did i probably just said that but <laughs> <laughs> anyway we'll see you soon thank you friends thank you for listening to the bought the t-shirt podcast please like subscribe and share and don't forget to follow me on social media username chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.thrall. Thank you.